This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. about the devolving nature of democracy in this country. And one of the ways that we are really seeing some threats to democracy is through the rise of uh, what many are labeling white Christian nationalism. You've heard me use that phrase a lot. And it, this idea that uh, there should be a religious uh, infusion into our body politic is something that I personally think is extraordinarily dangerous. I believe in separation of church and state for very significant reasons. And joining me right now is Andrew Seidel, Vice President of Strategic Communications uh, for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Uh, VP Seidel, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it is my pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for hosting me. Absolutely, absolutely. We, we're at a real, uh, real inflection point. Can you give our audience some understanding as to what it really means uh, in the authentic, original sense of the phrase when we talk about the separation of church and state? Yes, the separation of church and state is an American original, right? This, this, it's an American invention. The idea was born in the Enlightenment, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. And until then, no other nation in the history of the world had sought to protect the ability of its citizens to think freely by separating religion and government. Now, look, I'll be the first to admit that there is a lot wrong with our constitution, mm. a whole lot wrong, especially as it was as it was originally drafted. But but those secular foundations are they are unique and they are genuine contributions, not just to political science and thought, but to all of humanity. You know, our constitution was the first to declare that power comes from the people, not gods. Right. Mm. The words we the people are poetic and they're an aspiration, certainly, but there's so much more. You know, our constitution was the first not to mention a god or a deity. And it's, it's godless by choice, not by accident. In fact, there were some people in the founding generation that were kind of pissed off about that. And our constitution was the first to ban religious tests for public office in Article 6. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office, right? Wow. And that's before you even get to the First Amendment which is even more explicit, saying Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And, and those really are the, the basic building blocks of some of our most cherished freedoms, right? You, mm -hmm. you cannot have freedom of religion without the separation of church and state. You can't come together and build a strong democracy in a pluralistic society without that separation of church and state. So this really is one of the, the founding building blocks that, that I think we can actually be proud of and still fight for today. Now, you're someone who's intimately familiar with this. As an author and attorney, you've been defending the First Amendment for more than a decade in courts, out of courts. Uh, your career is sort of dedicated to challenging uh, religious privileges and, and battling Christian nationalism. With all that you just explained to us, how is it possible that so many people in our community, or in our nation, I should say, believe that uh, the Founding Fathers were these fervent, religious, uh, passionate religious folks? They they, they They've sort of Christianized the entire founding story mm -hmm. of this nation. How can that exist when the Constitution itself, a problematic as it is, was clearly explicit about not having a religious bent to what the politics looked like? Because of disinformation. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. really does trace back to white Christian nationalism. This is an entire political identity that is based on 
lies and myths, things that people have heard before that, you know, our laws are based on the Ten Commandments, that the founding fathers prayed during the Constitutional Convention, that George Washington knelt in the snow at Valley Forge and prayed. Oh, no. you know, all, all of these are popular myths, but they they are not true. Um, and And they have been pushed onto the country by peddlers of disinformation really looking to advance this white Christian nationalist agenda for, I mean, a really, probably the last 40 to 50 years, I think you can really trace a lot of the rise of this even back to, to Brown versus Board of Education and oh, to yeah. the attempt to, to desegregate our schools. Oh, yeah. And, and we've talked about that a lot on this show because right mm -hmm. after Brown v. Board of of uh, Brown v. Board of Segregation, <laughs> right after Brown <laughs> That kind of works too. Right, no, that too. Same thing, same thing. Uh, but right after that decision, we saw a significant number of, of white Christians, particularly in the South, who would wholly, uh, they, wholly, who would wholesale, boy, the Freudian slips here are amazing, uh, who would close <laughs> down public schools and then because mm -hmm. they did not want their children educated alongside black children and other non-white children and they would instead create these religious schools that would allow them the ability to exclude people who they they deemed to be less desirable uh, that example stands on its own but but give us oh, yeah. some sense as to the dangers of what it would have been or, or what could have been if we did not have sort of these separations what could have happened in in throughout the history of this country if we were really a christian quote-unquote nation as as envisioned by people who subscribe to white Christian nationalism. I mean, that I, I love that example for so many reasons. Um, the, the modern school choice movement and vouchers trace directly back to what you are talking about mm -hmm. there with the effort to, to put white kids into these conservative Christian schools in the South, the, so the segregation academies. Um, it, and really what so Christian nationalism, more broadly, white Christian nationalism, it, it's an existential threat to the America that that we know and that we love, to the American Republic. Mm. It's it's fundamentally opposed to democracy and pluralism, right? So if we if we don't fight it, if we don't relegate it back to the fringe, the the America that we aspire to will always be a dream. And mm. and, and what what it the battle really is is do we have a government of the people for the people and by the people? And when I say people, I mean all people here, right. or is ours a government of the Christians for the Christians and by the Christians? And and when they are, when white Christian nationalists are talking about Christians, they're talking about the right kind. I'm using air quotes mm. on the radio, so it's hard, to, but the right kind of conservative Christian, right? Conservative, white, heterosexual, male Christian. That's who they're talking about. Yeah. And, and the goal of white Christian nationalism is to create two classes of people, right? Th those favored conservative white Christians and everybody else. And the entire purpose, and, and to answer your question, what they are looking for is to rewrite our law so that it protects conservative white Christians, but doesn't bind them. Ooh. And that it binds everybody else, but doesn't protect them. That's, That's really scary. the end goal. It is. It's terrifying. So when we're thinking about how this is showing up already within our, our current conversation, when we think about reproductive justice, when we think about who mm -hmm. has the right to vote and who does not, who's considered an American and who's not, uh, I, you know, sometimes I, I'm a, folks think I'm being a little hyperbolic and I'm like, no, this is, I'm just telling you what's happening. This is literally what mm -hmm. they said. Like they said out of their mouth, like these are the things that they want to do. And we're thinking about uh, Project 2025, for example, and, and how sure. these, so these, uh, these goals are really just a 
part of our national conversation, but we don't often recognize them for the threat that they are. Uh, what does this mean in, in terms of practical application? Let's say uh, they're successful. Let's say we, we got mm-hmm. a Speaker of the House right now who, who uh, subscribes to this sort of ideology. Uh, what would our legal system, if we're binding uh, the non-white Christians, but protecting the white Christians in that analogy that you gave in that sort of juxtaposition, what does that mean for our legal system? What does it mean for the policy? Like, what would the practical difference in our oh, lived experience I mean, as Americans look yeah, like? Yeah, let me. I mean, let me give you some examples that we've already seen that we already know. Um, I mean, so so again, white white Christian national. It's a claim that America was founded as a Christian nation. That our laws and our government are based on Christian principles, and most importantly that we've strayed from that foundation, right? Mm-hmm. That we've, we've gotten away from our godly roots. And so they use the language of return to justify all manner of kind of hateful and sometimes evil public policy and even insurrections on January 6th. But huh. here are two examples that I think really get to the heart of it and, and showcase the white in white Christian nationalism, right? The Muslim ban. Mm. I mean, the, the Muslim ban is a, is a really good example of white Christian nationalism infecting our public policy. Another one is the child separation policy that the Trump administration put into place at the border. Wow. A lot of people don't remember this, but then Attorney General Jeff Sessions justified that by pointing to the Bible, by citing Romans 13. Mm. So did then spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders. They learned to do that in the White House Bible study. Um, now, wow. the, the January 6th insurrection is another good example of right the, the law, these people feeling entitled to, to overturn the results of a free and fair election when it doesn't go their way. Right? Christian nationalism provided the permission structure that those quote unquote patriots needed to attack their own government. And another really similar example that happened a few months before that, just six months before the insurrection, think, think back to June 1st, 2020. When Trump had peaceful protesters gassed and mm. beaten and brutalized with rubber bullets so that he could walk to a church and pose with a Bible, right? He, he trampled basically all six rights that are protected Ooh. in our First Amendment to align his government with white Christian nationalism. And it's this haunting, despicable scene that harkens back to some of the darkest moments in our history. And the whole point of that malignant stroll was to show that Trump and this nation are churched, that we are mm. Bible-believing and Bible-beating, that we are a Christian nation, and anybody who disagrees should be beaten and gassed, especially if they happen to be protesting that Black Lives Matter. And, and the point, again, is wow. to elevate that one group, white Christian nationalists, above everybody else. You you mentioned White House Bible study. Was that Were you being flippant there, or is that like an I actual was not, thing? I was not being flippant there. What? That was something that was instituted during the Trump administration. Uh, there was uh, a preacher, a guy by the last name of Drollinger, who was actually in the White House having Bible studies for, and I, I believe it was moved off campus pretty quickly, uh, but for really high-level secretaries and folks in the White House. Uh, huh. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I was raised in the black church, um, but I also, my parents are military, so we spent a lot of time visiting other places where, you know, the black church was not as prevalent. And I, mm-hmm. you know, Assemblies of God, non-denominational churches, where I began realizing, oh, we aren't all Christian the same way. <laughs> like, like, we Christian mm-hmm. differently. And, you know, we have a lot of members of the audience who are part of the Christian faith. And for some of them, it's hard to conceptualize, well, you know, yeah. it can't be that bad. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. We're all Christians washed in the blood of Jesus, such as it is, or such as the belief goes. And, and for those folks, it's 
hard to see or hard to divorce themselves from this idea that, well, if we're all Christian, for those to whom that term applies, then how bad could it be? I mean, I believe in Jesus. I think we should pray before we, you know, make policy. What are the dangers of not seeing the danger of the Christian nation, the nationalism part of the white Christian nationalism, particularly for those who feel some sort of religious affinity because they share the same faith, at least in label, if not in actual practice? Yeah, it's such a fantastic question because white Christian nationalism is not synonymous with Christianity. Mm. Right? Saying that somebody is a Christian nationalist is not the same as saying that somebody is a Christian. It's a really crucial distinction wow. for your listeners who may identify as Christian to understand. And it, I think it's hard when people first hear the term, maybe their backs get up a little bit, that, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian nationalist. And in fact, some of my colleagues that I do a ton of work with are clergy. And Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the organization that I work for, was founded by clergy. And we work with clergy all the time. They're plaintiffs in two of our big lawsuits right now. Um, and there's actually a group out there right now called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Wow. Right. And we're, we're, the truth is, we're not going to defeat Christian nationalism unless Christians themselves stand up. I believe there's a line in the Bible about getting your own house in order. Mm. And I think about that from time to time when I have this conversation. And uh, my friend Jamar Tisby, who who I've done a lot of work with on fighting white Christian nationalism, um, we wrote, he, he contributed to a report that I helped spearhead about the role that Christian nationalism played in the January 6th insurrection. Wow. And the section that he wrote was about the differences between an idea of black Christian nationalism, which is much more like Martin Luther King's I have a dream mm. for America and what that America would look like compared to the goals of the modern white Christian nationalist movement and how different and fundamentally opposed those two things are. Um, so I, it, it is crucial for people to understand that difference and that not all Christians are Christian nationalists, but that Christian nationalism really does pose a threat to the country that I think so many of us aspire to. Mm. I, I got to remind folks, and you know, because when we're talking about the distinctions, you know, when we, we often invoke the, the story of what happened with Nat Turner's rebellion, Nat Turner was a Christian. And Nat Turner felt inspired by God to take up arms against slave owners. And many of the slave owners that Nat Turner fought against were also Christian. So when we're talking about the difference between white Christian nationalism and Christianity, you know, one of the things that I've, I've often said when I do workshops or, or have conversations like this is what kind of Christian are you going to be? Are you going to be the kind mm -hmm. of Christian? that overthrows slavery or you're going to be the kind of Christian that says Jesus washed the slave master um, in, 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 in the blood of blessing and, and so you know so there, there are yes. some real distinctions here because there's a racial component to white the, the white part of Christian nationalism speaks to a real racialized component of this discourse talk with us about what your research and, and your, your advocacy has revealed to you if anything about how race factors into the formation of a white Christian national white Christian nationalist mindset i mean it, it is an absolutely crucial part of of christian nationalism is the white and white christian nationalism i mean you again look at the child separation policy that was instituted with the romans 13 the muslim ban we already talked about that look at some of the lawsuits that are being brought by white christian nationalist organizations right now 
you know, we we we've heard about these lawsuits about the the, the gay wedding cake case out of Colorado, right? right. And the, the website designer case out of Colorado, those are brought by a group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is this Christian nationalist legal organization that's a juggernaut, huge hundred million dollar budget. Mm. Um, a lot of recent exposés talking about their awful work to advance white Christian nationalism using our legal system. And those cases are really about destroying the basic civil rights laws that ended Jim Crow and segregation. That's what that's what those wow. are really about. And we are going to see as they succeed in advancing those cases in the name of anti-LGBTQ bigotry, that that spreads to other forms of bigotry against racial minorities, against religious minorities. We are we are going to see that. In fact, we already are seeing that. I have some examples in my latest book of after the, the gay wedding cake case was decided. Um, businesses trying to discriminate against, for instance, interracial couples, mm. because the Bible says so. And, and the fact of the matter is to go to go to your point about about Nat Turner, you know, shared values matter more than shared beliefs. Oh, oh, wait, that's a point <laughs> that needs to be on a T-shirt oh, and a bumper sticker. Oh, shared. Va- say it one more time. <laughs> shared values matter more than shared beliefs. Wow. And and shared values matter far more when we as a nation face an existential threat like white Christian nationalism, right? Our, our country is on fire. Mm-hmm. Our democracy isn't slipping away. It is being stolen. Mm-hmm. And those of us who share values like equality and justice and truth and fairness, we have to come together to stop the arsonist, to stop the thief. And that means fighting Christian nationalism. That means fighting for an America where the separation of state and church is not just absolute, but is also valued. Who mm. 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK. This, I, we actually already, oh, wow, we already have callers on the line who have questions about about this. Uh, let's take, you mind if we take a quick call, uh, Andrew? No, please. All right, uh, let's love- get Vince from New Jersey on the line. Vince, uh, welcome to the show. What's your question for our guest today? Well, not as much question as a comment. I mean, one is we can't ser- separate church and state, and which he did uh, say earlier because it's the foundation of our country they were here because of religious freedom but did you hear what did you hear what the guest said at the very beginning uh vice president seidel just talked about the fact that a lot of what we believe about the religiosity of the founding is a myth it it doesn't actually exist it it wasn't it's something that people tell themselves so that they can go to sleep well at night but that's not actually what was happening george washington did not pray uh before he signed anything uh the founders were intentionally uh desired to keep religion out of the constitution this is as he mentioned this is the first one of the only constitutions in the nation in the world that does not include God and allows people to be the, the source from whom power comes. So if, if those are all myths, then then what what's your question? Though not, the, I think that those were more those uh, institutions and practices weren't the Puritan founders. They were more of the country framers. Um, but dating back to William Penn and the first actual settlers, they were more in a religious base. But Are you talking about the settlers who then turned on the indigenous, who fed them and kept them from starving, and then they turned on them and stole their land and genocided them? Are you talking about those folks? Correct. And oh, okay. Christian, <laughs> Christian, <laughs> to me, Christian is, is a politically correct way of saying Ku Klux Klan. Ah, okay. So, so thank you for that comment. Andrew Seidel, what would you say to this idea that, well, the founders are different than the Puritans? Uh, because I have, as you can see, my own thoughts about the Puritans. <laughs> yeah, no, you- I mean, I mean, they absolutely, they absolutely are. 
Um, and in fact, um, so my first book is called The Founding Myth, and it gets into all of this, this disinformation. And I actually wrote about how different those two things are and how, in fact, far apart, for instance, the founding of the Massachusetts colony in Plymouth and all that was in time from the mm. framing of our constitution. And when the, you know, when the, fa when the framers were looking back at history and governments that they could base this new constitution on, <laughs> they were like, oh, basically like, no, no, thanks. We, no, thanks, Puritans. We've got a better idea huh. than what you did. Um, and I mean, there, you want to, and I do get into a little bit in that book too, the, the holy war that the the Puritans waged against, you know, the Pequots, for instance, setting fire to that village on the Mystic River, killing mm. 700 native men, women, and children, and, you know, likening that genocide to something out of the book of Joshua. Um, you know, it, it's, there's some really awful quotes from it, but God was above them. He laughed at his enemies and the enemies of his people in scorn, making them as a fiery oven, right? Like this is what they're saying wow. about committing genocide yeah so, yes. yeah so and, and I, I appreciate that you even mentioned the, the timeline there because when we're talking about early 1600s when puritans and whatnot and, and really late 1500s when we're talking about spanish and portuguese coming into this this side of the world uh, but we're talking uh, really early 1500s um because they had been enslaving africans for over 100 years before the the folks who later became the americans were doing it uh but there's a gap of over a hundred years from the early oh, 1600s yeah. to the late 1700s when we're at the revolutionary war yeah it's, people often it's forget crazy. we condense all of these history historic components of the american history we condense them in our mind there's like over 150 some odd years in between plymouth and and the constitution so clearly yes. there was some growth and expansion in thought there if the colonial time span is so deceptive right to us it's all old so it all seems kind of close <laughs> together but but jamestown was settled 180 years before the constitutional convention wow. so if you were born in like 1965 1966 you were born closer in time to the founding than the jamestown settlers wow like it's it's it, yeah it's crazy it's mind-blowing huh one of the things that you mentioned that that story in, in joshua that was used to justify the genociding of the pequot nation um i one of the things i always struggled with uh andrew seidel as a child in church was like we're just saying right Right. Like, I mean, OK, the children of Israel, they come out of the desert, um, you know, and there's sort of the whole story behind that, you know, slaves in Egypt, you know, travel through the desert, the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night to sort of lead them the parting of the sea. And then they get to the promised land and Joshua and Caleb was like, nah, son, that's our land. We could take it. The other spies who went on into the land were like, I don't know, this really isn't a thing. And God's like, fine, you don't trust me. Go back to the desert for 40 years, die out. And then the rest of you, once they've died out, will then be able to enter into the promised land and take it by force. And and, and one of the things that I've always grappled with as someone who was raised in this faith is that much of the Bible stories, the biblical stories that we know, which, again, I like to remind people, the Bible was not like one book that God just was like, bam, there's the book. It was like over 1600 years of of gathering stories from different parts of the world and, and putting them together and sort of, you know, commoditizing other people's stories and whatever. That's that's a whole other side. But one of the things I always struggled with was we often in biblical stories celebrate colonization. We often in biblical stories celebrate the domination of people who were minding their own business, but because somebody said God told us that this was our land, then there's also the idea that God blesses our ability to genocide against people who've got this land that we were promised because God told us so. If we're talking about white Christian nationalism and we're talking about how that 
sort of ideology is driving them. I, I personally, and I don't know how you feel about this. I'm curious to just your thoughts. I kind of feel as though we who subscribe or at least claim to be a part of the Christian faith who are not a part of the Christian nationalist bent of it, it is incumbent upon us to interrogate those stories differently in a way that many of us are afraid to do because we believe that it is a perfect book. There's no mistakes in it, even though like, you know, it's some people got more books in their Bible than other people, depending on which branch of Christianity you're from. What are your thoughts about the way the non-Christian nationalists still embrace the stories that justify the colonizing, the domination, the military force against people who are literally minding their own business because God blessed it? I mean, I think it goes back to those those shared values, I think, mattering more than the shared beliefs, mm. because I, th I think you have to interrogate all of that with an eye towards what you value most. Um, and, you know, as you were as you were talking about that, it was just it was reminding me of one of the things that I think is so crucial and so misunderstood about the separation of church and state is, is why it's so vital to preventing that kind of thing from happening here. Right, The, the fundamental right to be treated equally under the law actually depends on the separation of church and state, right? It, that is, it's a foundational principle that allows all of us to live as ourselves and believe as we choose and whatever, whatever of those stories we so choose, so long as we are not harming others. And, and right now, religious extremists and their lawmaker allies, allies, they're trying to force everyone to live by their beliefs. And, and they're trying to use religion as a license to harm others. They're threatening our freedom to live as ourselves. And that widens inequality in our communities and in our countries. And, and, and that's why the group that I work for, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, why we try to bring together people of all religions and of none mm. to fight in the courts, in the legislatures, in the public square for freedom without favor and equality without exception. Right? Because Wow. Shielding our laws from any religion's influence, that is what frees us to come together as equals and build a stronger democracy. Mm. And I got to just be honest with you, even if the, the founders of the nation were religious zealots, so what? That was hundreds some odd years ago. <laughs> like we don't, we don't still walk around driving a horse and buggy. We evolve. We learn and we do better. And we do better, hopefully, uh, generation after generation. So you know, I'm, I'm I'm a fan of like even if they were, let's not do that. <laughs> there are a whole lot of things in the past that we should sort of leave in the past. I I guess my final question for you, and I'm I'm really grateful for this conversation because this is a, a topic about which I am really intrigued. My final question for you is, what is our responsibility? Whether we are people who subscribe to the Christian faith or we're just trying to make sure American democracy doesn't fall around, fall down around us, what is our responsibility and how do we prevent the arsonists from burning this down? How do we prevent white Christian nationalists from being able to really drive us off this cliff in ways that, frankly, for some of us, there is no coming back? Yes, I mean, that's such a fantastic question. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of the question of our times. And it's what uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State are working to do every single day. I think on a, on a personal individual level, I think everybody really does have a duty to educate themselves about the threat that Christian white Christian nationalism poses and, and how you can oppose it in your everyday life and work. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that I hear from people all the time is like, what, what do I do when I see somebody write that, you know, George Washington prayed in the snow at Valley Forge or that we are one nation under God and in God we trust and all these things. Like, you don't have to necessarily learn all of the, the, the true facts that, that show that not to be the case. I mean, I'd love for people to go buy my book and, and do that, but you, you do have a duty to push back against that white 
Christian nationalist rhetoric. Yeah. Um, because they, if you are not part of that group, they are coming for you at some point. And and this is this gets to the why mm-hmm. of white Christian nationalism. The reason that we are seeing Americans turn to white Christian nationalism is because conservative white Christian American status as the dominant group in our society has been threatened. Right. Mm-hmm. It's been under threat for a long time. They're losing the, the quote unquote culture wars. Their benighted ideas and ideology are really unpopular. They're losing the privilege and the deference which they believe they are due. And, and we know that when a dominant group or caste in the society feels threatened, that it that it reacts in ways or overreacts to, in ways to try to retain that status. That's why we're seeing them turn to Christian nationalism. And I think as we realize the aspirational values that are implicit in true founding maxims, like we the people and yeah. equal justice under law, as we recognize that humans are human and worthy of rights, Conservative white Christian America is dying this slow demographic death and it's rebelling. They, mm-hmm. they are raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they have declared war. And whether you want to be part of that fight or not, it is coming for you if we don't push Christian nationalism back to the fringe. Mm, wow. I'm really grateful for this conversation. I'm hopeful that, as we, particularly as we take 2024 by storm, we can have you come back on to, to help us continue to unpack this a bit. Uh, this is th- the ability to have some engagement with this topic is going to be so important for anyone who cares at all about the politics of this nation and, and where we're headed. I'm uh, really grateful <laughs> for, for the fact that your organization is doing this work because Lord knows, and I mean that intentionally, we in trouble. <laughs> so we need as much help as we can get. Uh, Andrew Seidel, how can people follow your organization and the work that you all are doing? We are AU.org, Americans United for Separation of Church and State on all of the socials. I am Andrew L. Seidel, S-E-I-D-E-L, on all of the socials, too. Um, And I've got a couple books, American Crusade and The Founding Myth, if you want to understand uh, the whole history of this fight and then the last kind of decade of this fight in the courts. Those two books will help you out. Mm, good reading for the holidays. <laughs> Indeed. Because <laughs> we're going to need 20. I keep saying we got to rest in, tw- in December because we got to hit 2024 uh, in the stride that will take us through. Thank you so much for being here. Looking forward to having you back on the show. This is a conversation we must explore um, with a lot more depth. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. 